Welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we aim to ask the right questions. Today I'm speaking to writer Emerson Whitney about their novel, Daddy Boy. Emerson Whitney is a writer and a professor. Uh, his book, Heaven, McSweeney's 2020, was named a best book by the AV Club, Paper, Literary Hub, Refinery29, Miss Magazine, Chicago Review of Books, The Observer, and The Seattle Times. Heaven was also awarded a Kirkus Star and was written about by nonfiction editor at Kirkus, Eric Liebetrau, in a piece called Queer Memoir Old and New, as a profile of Emerson and Heaven is compared to Alice B. Toklas by Gertrude Stein. Heaven also won a silver medal in the Independent Publisher Book Awards and continues to garner praise. Emerson was named a 2020 Now List awardee in literature alongside Ocean Wong and Dane Smith by Them Magazine. Emerson's writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Los Angeles Review of Books, The Believer, Paris Review, as well as many other places. In 2017, Emerson Whitney was divorcing the woman he'd been with for 10 years, a dominatrix they called Daddy. Living in a tent in the backyard of their marital home, Emerson was startled to realize they didn't know what it meant to be an adult. We often look to our gender roles as a sort of roadmap for aging, he writes. I wanted to know what the process looked like without that. Not manness, not womanness. Dizzied by this realization, they turn to an activity steeped in stereotypical masculinity, storm chasing. Daddy Boy follows Emerson as they pack into a van with a ragtag group of storm chasers and drive up and down from Texas to North Dakota, staying in motels and eating at gas stations and hunting down storms like so many white whales. In heading with them to Texas, we return to, to the only side of adulthood Emerson has ever known their childhood. Interspersed throughout this trip are memories of dad, both Emerson's stepdad, Hank, present and unflinching and extremely Texan, and their biological dad, who they hardly knew. With his cowboy hats and random girlfriends, he always seemed so sweet and lost. Through these childhood vignettes, coupled with queer theory and weeks spent reading The Clouds Like Oracles, wanting nothing more than to drive straight into the eye of a storm, Emerson frames these probing questions of manhood against the dusty, loaded background of the American West. Hi, Emerson. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I guess from the get-go, given even just like talking to you and reading the bio and reading the book, I'm sort of wondering if you would classify this book as autofiction. Ooh, um, well, no, just because like, that's actually a really easy, <laughs> easy, straightforward answer. No, not fiction at all. So yeah. just straight um, nonfiction. And it's so interesting to me that those categories are really, um, they're just so, uh, especially with regards to like fiction versus nonfiction, there seems to be this thing that's like, if there's a drop of fiction in the nonfiction, does it then become fiction? Um, I think it's a really cool and important question always. And I say in the back of this that there's a lot of possibility for misremembering and like revisionist memory, because what is memory? Um, so whenever I answer that question, like, you know, technically, absolutely, it is nonfiction. Um, I don't really work in fiction at all. My brain just doesn't 
do that whole thing. I wish it could. Um, my grandma's always trying to get me to like write like something cool in fiction. Like she would love me to write like a murder mystery. It would be her favorite thing that I could possibly do. And I just like, I'm always like, I can't, um, it's just not, it's not where I'm at, but, um, but yeah, what even is truth? I think is always what I'm sort of asking with this work (laughs) for sure. I guess that's interesting because something that comes up along when I do these interviews, um, authors are often sort of kind of infuriated or annoyed when I read them in the text. And understandably, mm. because it can get kind of tiring, you know, I think about most other artists, like the musicians are a great example, um, not necessarily, you know, speaking to a true to life experience or wanting to be read in that personalized way. So it's fair to say that like, while I was reading Dad- Daddy Boy, I was I was like reading your diary, so to speak. That's, that's I, I definitely think you could you could say that. And I feel like, you know, so when oh, now I'm really curious when you ask people like about the it being autobiography in their fiction, is that when they're getting like annoyed? Well, I never say quite exactly that, but okay. you know, I'll talk about you know a character that they have. So let's say in this instance, Daddy Boy mm-hmm. was fiction. I would be like, mm-hmm. well, if Emerson is grappling, your narrator is grappling with all of these issues. Um, do you grapple with these issues personally? Got it. This is going to be a lot more transparent now in, the, in this conversation. But yeah. when it comes to fiction, authors tend to be uneasy and understandably, they're also like, I, I'm not just one of the characters. You can find me in all right. of the characters, um, oh. but. Right. It is something I like to explain. I, I always think that while I understand that fiction is not is fiction, literally mm-hmm. it's not the truth. Mm-hmm. I think that if you're going to be writing about something, it's because you care about whatever you're talking about in there. Yeah, like you, the person, the writer, cares totally. about the subject, and so that's what interests me. Um, I love that. Um, so this book dives into a lot of etymological questions, you know, what does daddy mean, uh, down to a moment in the first few pages of the book where you interrogate the term, uh, pop referring both to soda and a colloquial term for dad. Um, but then again, there are a lot of metaphorical rear interpretations, uh, you know, chasing tornadoes because it's a place where the narrator can feel a sense of self-control. Um, I'm wondering actually if you feel like it leans more towards, uh, an etymological investigation or a metaphorical reinterpretation? Ooh, Ooh. Um, <laughs> I love that. Um, for sure, it's a swirl. Like, mm-hmm. I'm always, I just, I mean, you're catching me like after therapy today. <laughs> and <Nice>. um, <laughs> in therapy, I was explaining that, like, we were talking about like neurodivergence and transness and whatever. And I have a really nice trans guy therapist who was like, does it feel the same when you're like adopting some of these other words for yourself? Like we were actually unpacking whether or not like my childhood diagnosis for like spectrum stuff at the time it was using that an outdated term. Um, but now we would say autism. Um, like when I was getting that diagnosis, like that it wasn't, um, I didn't ask for it. So I was like pulled out of class and like told, you know, that I needed to take these tests and whatever. Um, and so like, we were talking about how like trans as a word, like has a similar like medical history, um, or not, I mean, it has a medical history. I wouldn't necessarily quantify it as similar, but it has a medical history, transsexual specifically. And, and yet when people say that word, 
like around me or to me or, or with regards to my being, I get excited. It's almost like they're saying, come here. And it's mm. always felt like that. And I've always been like, yay. <laughs> um, and I know not everyone has that experience uh, for sure. But I think when I, when I engage with like uh, specifically like some of the, the diagnoses that I have, I don't love the word. And we literally spent like the whole hour or whatever unpacking like what I don't like about the word. And I, I am so invested in naming and what it means to like call into being with a name. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, for me, like using the, the people have been asking me actually on this, uh, I just finished my book tour for daddy boy. And we had some really amazing conversations like you and I are having now. And like in some of the moments, like people are like, well, would you, do you, do you use this word to define yourself? And I, I just, I stammer sometimes when it comes mm-hmm. to, um, disability. Cause for sure, um, I, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but like even the name for that is like the guy who discovered its name. <laughs> so it's always like, ah, it's just, it, I, my, all of my questions are always about language to some extent. Um, and the languages that I've been funneled through, which is really, uh, English. And so all of the, all of the ramifications of that, the fact that it's a colonizing language, the fact, you know, there's so much to say about, about that. Um, and I use that lens a ton. And at the same time, like in this particular book, is it metaphor? Um, I guess I don't, I think, I think for sure there's a lot of metaphor in here and I'm really excited for what people draw out for themselves. Like that's the collaborative nature of this is really my favorite aspect. So when people find things and are like, wait, you had locusts at the beginning and the end, like, is this some biblical thing? I'm like, you know what? Yes. Like, great. Like, let's <laughs> absolutely, uh, you know, cause it really is a collaborative art form in that way. Um, so yeah, it's both. Interesting, because I can see so many like uh, ways in which, I mean, it's very obvious when you read the book, too, that you care about language and the ways that it can be interpreted, um, like down to the nitty gritty of like various words. Um, but, you know, the book is also exploring gender, which is also the sort of like widescaping means all sort of things, uh, you know, format. Um, and I guess... I don't know, I guess it almost makes too much sense that language would be used to to explore something as equally as, you know, full of depth and variety, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Um, a lot of the book is centered around this idea of surrendering. Um, on page 11, the narrator asks, here's the question, how to live without resolution. Uh, personally, I'm honestly at this exact point in my life lately where I'm oh. finding this realization so frustrating. It's like you okay. reach out to it at a certain point and it's like, oh, th- that's kind of just how things are. Like mm-hmm. kind of just have to live with that resolution for a lot of aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's in the question in itself. It's inherently unsolvable. It's so frustrating to me. If, if, if there's something that's challenging to you, I wish, I would hope that there would be a solution to it. But right. some things are just unsolvable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you or if you f- or if you feel the narrator was struggling with that, especially as a trans person, person mm-hmm. uh, where your entire life is sort of defined with the idea that there is no binary. So it's like there's no solution almost for, for Emerson in, in this text. Um <laughs> To be in a binary doesn't make sense, but also right. to fully idea and masculinity is clearly something they're grappling with. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. 
For sure. And I would say, like, I it's even really funny for me, too, because, like, of course, there are plenty of trans people who um, who enjoy, like, identifying on at any point of the of the spectrum of gender, whether mm-hmm. it is a binary um, expression, quote unquote, or not. Like, mm-hmm. so many different folks have that experience. And I for sure, I guess it's been funny because I, I never in my life have like said I'm non-binary or like but I if I google me like there's like non there's like envy flags and stuff and it's great I mean it's like I don't know like I think I think at this point I'm I I definitely identify with having more questions than answers Mm -hmm. and I know like I guess I'm I guess I'm saying the same thing again when I'm saying like of course our systems of gender come through all of these systems of oppression that like are interlocking. So gender mm-hmm. is this one of these aspects, um, especially like an enforced binary is one of those aspects. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if we're looking at adulting through capitalism, I imagine that that's part of why I was feeling like, okay, I kind of have these like two ways that I know I've been taught to go. Um, I was also starting to look like my mom as I was aging, which I was Mm -hmm. like surprised by like my little, my fingers were like, I was like, those are my mom's fingers. (laughs) And I was just like, but like what, like what, um, what of this is, is like, I almost want to use the word um, choice, but I think my response to growing up, quote unquote, was with maybe some surprise. Like not only was I surprised that my fingers looked like my mom's, but I was also really surprised that like what I'd really deeply identified with for all of my 20s, which was being a submissive and being a quote unquote boy um, in like a DS lifestyle relationship. Um, I was shocked that that was just like leaving me. And I was sort of like, is that adulthood? Like what is going on? And I, I guess I wanted to, um, explore that juxtaposed with going on a storm chasing tour and Mm -hmm. exploring something that for me had been like an absolute childhood special interest that was very nerdy to me and I felt embarrassed by and Mm -hmm. I similarly felt sort of embarrassed by another um marker of time in my life similar to puberty you know where there's like a marker of like it's a it's a vulnerable time when we go through these kinds of like life markers and I find um there's not as much support for for when we go through these things as we get older um Mm -hmm. at least culturally here in in the U.S., for example, um, there's not a lot of support for for yeah, like the changes and the passing of time that marks those changes. So, you know, I'm hearing that you're kind of going through something like that right now too, and it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, mine isn't necessarily gender related, but I do feel like that there is a sort of like wherever you go in society, you sort of have to make a decision about who you are and, and, and totally. what you are. And, you know, and that can mean a lot of things to various people. And, or there, there's this desire to just know, like, it's just like a human condition and this does right. Everyone wants to be known and to know something. And mm-hmm. it's deeply unsatisfying when you realize that like, you don't fully know yourself and totally. you don't fully know knowledge. It's just not in our, in our means. And it's, I think so it's a hard true. thing for people to sit with. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, yeah. 
um, it's, I like I literally have a podcast where I'm just like dedicated to trying to know. You know what I mean? So it's totally. like totally. <laughs> it's, like, awesome. it's a very hard reality for me to for mm-hmm. me to sit with. Mm-hmm. Um, on page thirty two, um, I mean, you sort of allude to this, but um, the the narrator wonders, how do I enter maturity? I don't want mm-hmm. to use his version of madness to get in womanness either. Can you say more here? Yeah, um, definitely. I was thinking, I was, I think in that moment, I'm talking about Hank, who is my stepdad guy, who um, is my ex-stepdad guy, uh, which I've never, similarly, I don't ever know how to quantify his title, because he was my stepdad when I was like, between like three and 10, or no, that's not true, three and seven, I guess. And then never again, like, you know, but he's always been in my life. And I lived with him when I was in high school. Um, after there was this whole thing with child protective services, that's a long story. Um, but essentially, I was, I was able to live with him. And that was great. And mm-hmm. I love this guy deeply. Um, and at the same time, his, his way of enacting misogyny is really is really something that I, I have a huge reaction toward. Um, I find it really discomforting and um, actually really kind of scary to see him sort of code switch like that. And I don't, I, there's no part of me that wants to do that. And yet when I'm like around a bunch of dudes, I can feel myself like wanting to be like both safe, but also like, like, yeah, I guess safe. <laughs> I was like, what else is it? Oh, it's safe. So I like want to say stuff and I want to like say these, like say these things that he says with a certain cadence. It's like, you know, you don't laugh. You like, you kind of look at the ground, like all of these ways of being um, like acceptable within those kinds of more like, you know, masculine, but with like a very serious texture of misogyny, masculine environments that I just have no desire to like grow into essentially. Something about trans men that I've like often wondered about in terms of Mm. exactly what you said, it's clearly like gender dysmorphia is real. There's a a discomfort in what you're being forced to identify with. You identify a lot more with this masculine energy, but at the same time you are not attracted by the misogyny yeah. that can come with it the masculine toxin or, i guess that's really my question like yeah like maybe the whole thing is that masculinity doesn't have to come with toxicity if you're drawn yeah. to it mm-hmm. but you're not drawn to toxicity then maybe that's the problem that we think that masculinity is in and of itself toxic is that absolutely i would say that and and like i i guess i'm sort of i'm quoting so many people that are you know well way way more well versed than i am in in the ways that they articulate this from their from their backgrounds and their subject positions but like the understanding that the 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 only way we've ever been funneled through at least in my lifetime the only way that i've ever been funneled through these genders is through colonization and white supremacy mm-hmm. and just the violence of that has has conflated toxicity with you know um, with a gender where, mm-hmm. uh, where the, the inherent qualities of any of these, these genders, um, these many, many genders do not, do not exist with that conflation. That's just like, it's just, it's just awful when, when, um, 
when what we're left with is sort of a skeleton of a truth. And the truth is that we, I, I would argue that we all have these energies within us and, you know, maybe they're like, I mean, now I'm thinking about how, like, of course, when, when I do like, um, when I go buy things at Home Depot, like the, Mm -hmm. it'll be like the part that I'm buying is called the male part. And then Mm -hmm. the other part that I'm buying, like, it'll be like the female part. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that female part is not like, I would never like go up to the person that's helping me at Home Depot and be like, I would like the sensitive, soft, <laughs> caring, imaginative, like creative yeah. hose plug, please. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause they're the, the, and ha- those qualities that we associate with those, um, like literal parts have nothing to do with the any parts and you know that's not even getting into um the false binary of sex which is mm-hmm. not real either there's a lot of variation between what it means to be bio quote-unquote biologically male or biologically female mm-hmm. um so yeah mm-hmm. there's a lot there i mean it's an interesting point also uh, you have uh i believe it's sorry is it Jane Yates Sexton? Um, oh, yeah. Jared, I think. Jerry, sorry. I, I don't like, know what? the person really. I'm, I'm always horrible at remembering <laughs> the everyone's name, but that is in the book for sure. Yeah. Well, well, they said, and they're quoted yes. in the book and sort of uh, discuss the ways in which masculinity and capitalism are tied up uh, yeah. in its very definition. And I'm sort of wondering if you can give listeners a brief summary of what's being said there. Like, very brief. Like, yeah. in what ways is gender tied up? Or masculinity tied up to capitalism. Well, what he's saying is that, like, the way that people, especially he's talking about white masculinity, that it's mm-hmm. sold this idea that mm-hmm. eventually you'll, like, you'll achieve this thing. And so you mm-hmm. can theoretically buy it. That, that if you're, if you want to, if you want masculinity, you have to buy into it. And you can buy into it your whole life and still not ever get there. And mm-hmm. the harm that happens in his description is that that creates this dynamic of, you know, of, um, violence essentially. And he, mm. he, he felt like that what it, what it manifested as was an insecurity because who can really buy into it? Well, not really. He, maybe, maybe no one, but especially no one in in the working class, for example, you know, and beyond. So, so yeah, um, that's pretty much what he's getting at there. Another line uh, that particularly struck me, especially in the of the book's overall themes, was when you write, um, an elder is a map. Um, mm-hmm. In what ways is an elder a map? Oh, I'm so grateful for, for the, the, any, truly, um, I'm grateful for elders, like, in general, and also very specifically the elders in my life and, and trans elders. It's just been incredible to have like life revealed to me through their life. Like what a gift. Um, I'm actually reading, uh, Miss Major's new book right now. Um, which I think it's Major Speaks, I think is the title. Um, and it's just been so good. Like even, I'm just like even noticing they, which is like so sad that it's mind blowing to me, but they use TLGB like throughout, like instead of any other version of that acronym, like, and like major saying it, it's um, a conversation um, between major and I believe uh, Tashi is the person's name. And like, I'm just so like, it's, it's really both like enlivening and super sad to notice that there's just been so 
So a little of that kind of way of, of centering transness, particularly in, in, in the realm of anything that Miss Major does, um, abolition and blackness and, and femininity and transness. Um, and like all of that in this text is so, it does feel like I'm, I'm looking at a map. I've always felt like this when I engage with folks doing abolition work and those folks have been elders in my life so yeah I just feel like I want to follow I want to follow Miss Major and these other people who I just care for so much um, whose names might not be recognized uh, in in our culture in media or in our you know social media either but just people I know who I really care about who've shown me like how I actually would like to walk into what maybe we're identifying as uh, maturity the narration is also often directed to the reader uh like directly uh (laughs) references are even made about the text being a book like information Mm -hmm. who is emerson speaking to who are you (laughs) you know it's so fun i love this question so much because it was such um i think like as i'm growing we're continuing with the theme of like growing and maturing i guess but like um, if, if the idea of maturity comes from the word, like to ripen, like if something growing on a tree is becoming ripened, like mm-hmm. as, as I watch books that I make, like come into ripeness, I guess, um, I find that I'm growing more and more comfortable just writing as I, as I would, if, if it were in my diary or like you said, or in my journal, um, mm-hmm. I, when I was younger, I would always be like, it's not a diary, it's a journal. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know if like, for the, that's probably another gender thing. I was probably freaked out that like a diary made it sound like it was flowery. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm doing serious work in these journals as an eight year old. Like, um, but it's for sure. I feel like I'm getting more and more comfortable just just writing like that. And when I write in my notebook, since I was a little kid, I would always say, dear, like you. Um, and I've often said in these interviews that I'm writing to like my best friend, which is writing. Like writing itself is, is my best friend. Um, I love hanging out with my best friend. We hang out every day. I love him so much. <laughs> we just have a great time. That's and so sweet. I, it's just, it's like so real. Like I just love I love writing (laughs) and, and we just hang out and I've always just talked to writing. Um, I didn't have like a God quote unquote figure that I would talk to as a kid, but I needed one. (laughs) And so I would, I would just, I would just write to writing. Um, and I still do that every single day. Uh, and when I don't, I'm bummed about it. So, um, I'll probably keep doing it, but I also, I think I noticed, I was even thinking about this question the other day when I was working on a new project and I was like, you know, I think I'm also writing to like, when I'm using direct address, I am also directly, not only am I writing to writing, but I am directly addressing like the reader because I think the reader is so incredible the fact that there's anyone out there like this is my message in a bottle you know what Mm -hmm. I mean Mm -hmm. like the fact that anyone is picking up picking this up and reading it means that we are in relationship Mm -hmm. and like how fucking beautiful is that like I want to acknowledge that you're with me in this how special there's nothing I can think of that's more profound to me than that kind of intimacy so I think I'm saying like hi (laughs) That's so sweet. I go cry. <laughs> That's the sweetest read of that, and I'm very unexpected, to be honest, on my end. Oh, um, well, it's true. <laughs> um, 
On independence, Emerson considers what about interdependence? Uh, I've learned so much about interdependence as part of disabled communities I belong to. The idea of interdependence as a goal is ridiculous because we're all just temporarily abled, right? We need each other. Um, I think about this a lot too, you know, how do we foster independent independence or interdependence? Interdependent, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's like, it, it does feel like a, yeah, there's so, there's, those words are basically, they sound so similar, but right, there's a whole other thing going on. But similarly, like, I don't know, I actually think like, low key, we all know that interdependence is so important. We know that community right. and all we have is each other. Um, and that's wonderful. And that's great. Um, but I still think that we need to foster independence, independence, but mm. in such a way that is not synonymous with isolation, because I think that that's where the totally. that's where the dangers come from. And sort of really, my question is kind of like, how do you think we can like foster independence and distinguish mm. isolation? Well, I mean, I think that's a great question, because in a way, I think of like where this is coming from for me is learning from um, disabled folks who are like, like me experiencing varying levels of need. So like, there are days where I truly need people like right here to help me physically do stuff like there are just physically things I can't do very regularly. And I literally need help. And it is very intense to be at that level of vulnerability. But like, also, for example, my grandma, like cannot, like, I mean, she would, she is somebody who really struggles with being with other people, she would prefer to be completely alone. But she also really has a lot of physical needs and always has she has Ehlers-Danlos, same as me. And like, yeah, we just have a lot of physical needs and barriers to access and so independence it couldn't even be like death you know what I mean like we literally physically need other others whether it is helper others or like even virtual others like I did therapy virtually today you know like you know we need we need each other and I think this idea of like independence at least in the U.S. is so tied up with capitalism of course again and all these other aspects that we're talking about um but it's so harmful to think that that's the goal like that that is the singular goal especially when you know that we actually truly are going to or right now need each other and that there are many many people who have more um more understanding of that because they're just physically in need um, but I think I, I'm wondering what, if what you mean by independence here is like, like autonomy, like, so that, like, like not codependence, like, I'm wondering if that's kind of what you mean when you say independence. Yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's, a, there's exactly, it's like, it's one extreme of the other. Interdependence totally. is a wonderful idea, but then, and, and I find that similarly, um, you can kind of see that in Emerson's relationship in like romantic relationship in the book yeah for sure yeah and while it's beautiful and, and obviously you know these people are in love you do feel the sense that he is he kind of forms his identity around his partner to a certain extent yeah you're um, right i did i did do that. <laughs> <laughs> i definitely did that <laughs> definitely <laughs> i mean because what else i mean i was 20 years old you know what i mean like damn you know like what else are we doing at 20 and i i truly wanted to be liked you know like so bad yeah, of and 
I just wanted to be included. And here was this beautiful kind of like offering, which was not just my partnership, but it was also this really stunning world of kink that I got to be part of for a long time. And still, you know, I will always be in, I think, but um, not to the extent that I think it was, I think definitely what a, I'm so um, honored and grateful that that was a way that I was able to form my identity, that those were like aspects of my my process of being how cool and yet like for sure I think the places where it felt codependent and not very good were places where my worth and like by worth I think I even mean like that soft voice in my head that can be really mean to me sometimes um when that kind of voice in my head is not my own is not it belongs to one other person because as I'm saying, it's not my own, like whatever is my own, who knows um, what is selfhood. Like we have no idea, but it's definitely a constellation of things. But I think it's dangerous when it's one other person. That's when, that's when I think we're in a zone that we could use some more autonomy. I mean, I guess full circle to our first auto fiction question, but Mm -hmm. And I mean, you just, you answered it, but like, you are a storm chaser. Are you a storm chaser? <laughs> yes. And could you, given that you are, like, tell me the thrill <laughs> of it and compare it to kink? Okay, that's cool. Um, <laughs> that is for sure. I mean, yeah, I love to storm chase. I love to be in a storm. I, I just like yesterday was, I got, I downloaded, um, I don't even know why I did actually, but we've been having like really, um, very stagnant weather like in a way that I'm not I've never experienced in my life in this particular place um where it's just misty and foggy and humid and nothing's moving and I don't know what compelled me but I downloaded the storm tracker app which is like the best it's like my favorite one and I was like oh god there's this line of storms like going near me but it's not gonna get here and I'm like telling my spouse and I'm telling my friend with you know my best friend who we live with and like I'm like y'all it's look at this this is nice it's got a little pink there on the radar like I will always get excited it's very it's just it's full special interest vibes like I love it <laughs> um and I think what I write about on this tour which is like this is a very specific way of going storm chasing because when I was young and we would just go it's very different because you don't mind getting hit by it (laughs) like you're trying to get hit by it but on the tour you're not the intention isn't i which i did not know going into it the intention is not to get like walloped by it um which is my personal (laughs) desire is to be as close as possible in some ways to that thunderousness without without being harmed or or without it harming others or even other you know even others um material items like um, just that kind of awe experience is what I find really, really compelling. And the, the incredible sort of, um, it grab it takes my attention. Like I have an overactive mind for sure. And I get to be quiet. I think it's like what other people experience when they watch like a movie or something. Like I don't watch movies. I don't like movies. I, I don't watch virtually anything that's fiction, like at all. And I can't sink into a story like that. It just doesn't happen for me. But I can do that with a storm. I I wish it was more readily available maybe. But when that's happening, I feel engrossed, attentive, um, present. You don't don't feel scared for your life? 
No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, they're not. Well, we could go into like why, I guess. But there are definitely things that scare me that, um, that like, yeah, I've definitely, I definitely get scared for my life in in, in moments, but for sure not with um, a big old thunderstorm. That doesn't really scare me, or a tornado, really. But it's because you can kind of get flat. I mean, I don't know. It it it, it is not. If you're intending to be part of it, it's safer, I guess is what I want to say, because you're so aware that it's possible and you like have prepared and all that stuff. Um, but if you don't know that that's coming, it's actually extremely dangerous. And, um, you know, storm chasing actually as a field, it, it really does actually help people. Like sometimes it's the only way that a town knows that there's a tornado on the ground is because a storm chaser has physically called it in. So in some ways, like there are people watching the sky on behalf of everybody, hopefully, which is nice um, to imagine. Um, but yeah, I don't feel scared in those moments. Again, mostly because I'm like prepared um, and thinking about it. But of course it's still, I guess, yeah, it is still dangerous. But what, what I, I was thinking about was that on the tour, the point is actually for people to get good pictures to some extent. So they don't want you to just get like hit by it. <laughs> and so I found that kind of frustrating. And of course, you're absolutely right. It relates to kink. And I've, I've also had people <laughs> say to me, well, isn't that also similar to autobiography? Because like we're talking about fiction versus nonfiction to some extent. In this work, these are real people in my life. When I'm talking, you're right. I am literally describing myself. Um, and all that mess, you know, I'm not right. Like exactly as we're talking about, there's a, uh, especially cause my name is on a book. There's an expectation that I know stuff and that makes sense. I wrote about things and we get to have these cool conversations. And yet I'm here to say, I truly am. I don't know. Like I'm not an expert. Um, all I have is my experience and that is a very vulnerable place to come from. So in some ways it's also risky and, similarly I guess there's an adrenaline to it like I feel adrenalized by by I guess nonfiction, which has been pointed out to me I never set out to think of it like that but for sure I can see that and with kink absolutely like there's an incredible power in finding oneself uh amid surrender like how cool especially if someone's not used to experiencing that which there are people in our culture who aren't um yeah, watching, like paying for rapture, as I say in the book, is worth it. <laughs> and how cool, though, when we can find it within ourselves, too, which is part of what I was setting out to do. Love that. It's a beautiful note to end it on. Um, listeners, you can pick up a copy of Danny Boy and you're at your local bookseller. Um, thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much for having me. It's been totally super fun.